method to you. Our Lord comes, maybe this week. How glorious, how glorious that would be. Well, this week I've been looking forward to finishing the sermon that we started last week, which is actually a continuation of the sermon we'd started the week before. And uh, we had talked about the crucifixion, we had talked about the resurrection, and last week we, we talked about the fact that usually the churches will celebrate the, the, the resurrection and you know, we, we preach on the crucifixion and the passion of Christ and, and all, and then we just sort of drop what happens next. But what happens next is extremely important in us understanding God's plan and purpose and His promises to the nation of Israel, His plan and program uh, for, for His chosen people, uh, His peculiar treasure, and the plan for, for them, and what was next on the prophetic agenda. Uh, that, what happens next is intricately, uh, or as integral as far as God's plan and purpose, and the plan and purpose of the apostles, and what there's the part that they are to play in it, and all the things that follow after that uh, are all working toward an ex extremely important event and that is the promise of the Father that is the empowering, uh, the empowering from on high by the Holy Spirit on these apostles in order for them to carry out the plan and purpose of God the Father, uh, the fulfilling the, the, the Feast of Pentecost and all that it was, all that it was uh, part, part of. So I've been looking forward to finishing that. Uh, as we move into that aspect of it, I, I want us to remember that the cross shows the love of God. Amen? The resurrection shows the power of God. What follows shows absolutely the faithfulness of God to do what He says He's going to do. And one of the things that's part of that is the forgiveness of God. I got to tell you, for God to follow through with his offer to the nation of Israel, and remember on the cross, what did our Lord say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Can't tell you the significance and how important that, that is from the Lord Jesus Christ. That prayer. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What comes next is God offering to those who literally crucified him those who rejected him for God to follow through and offer them all the things that he had promised to the nation of Israel to be to be his peculiar people his nation of priests that his blessing still to be poured out upon them if they would only do what he told them and called them to do that is repent and be baptized for the remission of their sins. All of that was part of God's program. And for them to repent in order that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, literally with the Messiah setting up his kingdom on earth in Jerusalem and the apostles doing what they were told they were going to be doing, and that is sitting on 12 thrones judging uh, the 12 tribes. So the cross shows the love of God. The resurrection shows the power of God. What follows shows not only the forgiveness of God, but the faithfulness of God to carry out what he said he was going to do. And, and as, as you look at this, the consistency of it 
just proves to us, just tells us, it screams at us that we can trust God and trust His Word. That the way it just comes together, the way that it flows, the way that it ties together, this is not some man-made plot. This is not some man-made scheme. This is not something that man generated and said, hey, let's, let's come up with a story and try to get people, fool people into believing it. From Genesis to Revelation, it is God desiring to have fellowship with His creation and all the, the extreme measures that God was going to go to in order to have that relationship with you, that relationship with me. What a, what a powerful God we serve. Um, so this morning, turn with me to John chapter 21. We looked at John chapter 20 last, last week. John chapter 21, verse 1. And all of these things can take place because Jesus Christ is alive. He's no longer in a tomb. He lives. And it's because He lives, He, he can bring about all those things that God the Father had promised. And after these things, now you can go up to verse or chapter 20 and you, you find out which things that uh, he, was, he was talking about, the resurrection, uh, the, all the things him showing himself to the, to the, uh, the apostles, uh, him breathing on them and, and telling them to receive power from on high, um, all, all of those things and, and doubting Thomas and, and the incident there with, with him, all of those things. Verse 30 of John 20 says, And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through His name. All the things that we have uh, in the Scripture, and especially concerning the, crucif the, the, the life of Christ, the earthly ministry of Christ, the, the cross, the resurrection, all of those things are written as signs for you to know that, that He's alive, that He is real. You know, you have people all the time to say, you know what, if God would just show himself real today, if he would do something from heaven, if he would just shake us up, if he would just do some things in order to get our attention, why, boy, the world would just be a different place and we'd all get in line and, 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 and we would get right with God. And folks, that's not true. That's just not true. Because here it happened. And we're going to look at some of those signs and some of those wonders. And it did not, it did not happen then. These things were written that you might believe, but not everybody did believe. It's because man's heart's wicked. So after these things, J Jesus showed himself again to the disciples. The Greek word there, showed, is pretty interesting because it has to do with manifest. It, it has to do with his glory. He didn't just say, here I am, guys. Here I am. I mean, he manifested himself. His glory was declared by his very presence when he showed himself again to the disciples 
at the sea of Tiberias, and on this wise showed he himself. His glory was manifested in order to strengthen their belief, in order for them to understand exactly who he was. Now, the next verses, to me, are some of the strangest verses in the Bible. And I'm here to freely admit I don't understand exactly what's happened here. I mean, I understand it because I like to go fishing too. And when something bad happens, i got to tell you, the best place to be is on Creek Bank. You can get some thinking done. You can straighten some stuff out in your mind. And so if, if you ever hear that I've gone fishing, I'm... I'm ministering, okay, just so you know, and I do the same thing on the golf course. To me, golfing and fishing, that's ministry, and and maybe that's what the apostles were doing as they were uh, going fishing, but look what happened. Verse 2, there were together Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathaniel of Canaan and Galilee and the sons of Zebedee and two other of his disciples. And Simon Peter said unto them, I go fishing. They'd just seen the Lord Jesus. He had just manifested himself. He had just appeared to them. And he's saying, I'm going fishing. To me, that is just strange. One of the reasons I think it's strange, because in Matthew 4, 19, what had Christ told Peter and the 12, or the the 11? I'm going to make you fishers of men. You would just think after what they witnessed and what they had gone through, what they had experienced, the last thing they would want to do would just be go fishing. But you would think that 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 phrase, I'm going to make you fishers of men, would just be ringing in their ears. But they don't. And the rest of them, Peter says, I'm going to go fishing. And they said unto him, we also go with you. I mean, after all, he's the one that's going to have the keys to the kingdom. And if he says, let's go fishing, let's go fishing. And they went forth and entered into a ship immediately. And that night they caught nothing. Now, folks, I think this is the reason why God allowed this to take place and why this is here in the ending of of the book of John. It's because... In their own might, and in their own plans, and their own scheme, well, they're going to go fishing. And they're not going to catch anything. It is not until the Messiah comes on the scene. It's not until he takes action that they're profitable. That what they are attempting to do takes hold and they caught nothing verse 4 but when the morning was now come Jesus stood on the shore but the disciples knew not that it was Jesus and he said unto them children have you any meat have you caught anything and they said no you know what I'd call that if I'd gone fishing and didn't catch anything other than typical I failure failure They had gone fishing, and there was failure. Now, what's interesting about this, the whole book of John, 
and, and, and Neil Schnoth just recently finished a Sunday school lesson on the book of John and the eight signs that are part of the book of John. There are eight signs, and he did a superb job as he went through, and he talked about each one of the signs. There are eight, eight of them. This is the final sign. And all eight signs, their purpose was to do two things. One, demonstrate Israel's and the people's great need for the Messiah. The second purpose was to show that Jesus Christ is their answer. He is the answer. He is the solution to their great need. Without Him, they are nothing. And all of those uh, signs were to show Israel, you are distressed. Israel, you are in need. Here is the Messiah. He meets that need. He has the ability to meet that need. So each and every one of those signs, and, and if you go through it, the, the first sign and the last sign are connected. Then the second sign and the seventh sign. Then the third sign and the sixth sign and the uh, and the fourth and then the fifth. I mean, it comes together. And again, just another, just another indication of how wonderful God's Word is. So if you studied it, you'd go, wow, this is amazing. Look how God put this together. Just another indication for him to say, look, I love you so much. I'm gonna, my scripture, it's gonna, my Word is going to be so consistent. It's going to be such a fun thing to study this. And he puts it in this, this framework. And both the first and the last specifically demonstrate Israel's need for the Messiah to supply what they could not supply themselves. The first miracle is over in John chapter 2. And the Lord Jesus is at the marriage feast of Canaan. And his mother comes to him and says, they have no wine. Wine indicating joy, something to uh, excitement. And Mary says, they have no wine. And what does the Lord do? He changes the water into wine. They pour water into those six huge jugs. And by the way, those jugs were what the priest would use to purify and sprinkling and used them to, to purify Israel. They had ceremonial purposes. And Christ said, pour water into these jugs because those jugs were empty. They were not being used. There was, they were just sitting there. They were at the marriage feast and they were, oh, I guess, just sitting around. I don't know if they already consumed the wine. I don't know. I know that, that uh, Psalm 104, verse 15, as they're talking about all the blessings of God, Psalm 104, 15 pr praises God for the wine that makes merry the heart of man, that makes glad the heart of man. Here, Israel had no joy. They had no gladness. And it's the Messiah that's going to be able to furnish that. That's the first sign. 
And sure enough, the Lord Jesus came along and he changed the water into wine that added joy to the nation of Israel. Without him, there would be no joy. Without him, there would be no excitement. Without him, there is no reason to celebrate something as wonderful as this marriage feast. The second, or the last sign, was they were supposed to be fishers of men. They had taken it on themselves to go fishing, and the Messiah is on the bank, and the Lord Jesus says, have you caught anything? And what, what did they say? No. No sustenance. They, they have, they've not caught anything. Have you any food? Have you any meat? And they answered him, no. Demonstrating failure. And he, Christ Jesus, said unto them, cast the net on the right side of the ship, and you shall find. And you know what? They were wise to follow the Messiah's instructions. Israel, if you want the blessings that have been promised to you, you will be wise to follow the Messiah's instruction. If you want to be the fishers of men, or you, if you want to be as productive as the Messiah wants you to be and has called you to be, then you're going to follow his instructions. And when they followed his instructions, oh, the blessings, the fish, representing all of those blessings that would come to Israel if they followed the Messiah's instructions. And it starts with them. Starts with them. Cast the net on the right side of the ship, and you shall find. And they cast, therefore, and now they were not able to draw it for the multitude of fishing. Fishes or fish. Israel! Pay attention. Listen to this. See what's going on here. The blessings that God intends for you, it, you're not going to be able to contain them all. They're just going to overflow. And basically, that's what Matthew 15 is all about, where the, the Gentile woman comes and, and says, Lord, heal my daughter. And the Lord doesn't answer anything. And... He just says that the, you, know, you, you don't eat from the scraps. I mean, you, you don't eat from our table. And what did this woman say? Even the dogs eat the scraps that fall from the table, the blessings that overflow. See, that would, Israel was to be that light unto the Gentiles. Israel was to be that nation that, that just showed who the true God of all is. And the blessings that came would just overflow, and they would all be blessed. It would leave no one in doubt who the true God of heaven is. And that's what this is all about. And they would recognize as this ordeal took place, as this big feast or this big fishing expedition took place, it says they didn't know who he was at first, but they did what he said. And it's when these blessings started overflowing that they recognized it's him. It's him. These blessings couldn't, could not have come from anyone else. And that's, that's what's going on here. This is not just a, a fish story. This is not just something that, that occurred and, and without really any spiritual significance and we're just supposed to read about it and go, isn't that, isn't that nice? 
Well, if Peter can go fishing, I can go fishing. That's not what that's about. There is some spiritual significance, folks, that, that we need to understand. That God is showing His power, His might. And you follow His instructions. There are going to be blessings galore. And therefore, that disciple who Jesus loved said unto Peter, It is the Lord. And then when Simon Peter that heard it was the Lord, he girded his fisher's coat unto him, for he was naked, and he cast himself into the sea. He, he, he couldn't wait. He couldn't wait. That was the Lord on the shore. Kind of impulsive. That's who Peter was. Let the other guys row the boat in. He, he wanted to get and be there first. And the other disciples came in a little ship, for they were not far from the land, but as it were 200 cubits, dragging, I like that word dragging, dragging the net with fish. And as soon as they were come to land, they saw a fire of coals there, and fish laid thereon and bread. And here we go with the Messiah furnishing them with what their needs are. Remember, he had told them back over in Matthew 10, he says, don't take any thought about what you're going to wear, what you're gonna, where you're going to live, what you're going to eat. You, your Father in heaven knows that you have need of all these things. He's going to supply. They get there, and it's the Lord Jesus, the Messiah himself, that is furnishing their needs. They hadn't caught anything. They weren't going to be able to furnish anything for themselves. Verse 10, and Jesus said unto them, Bring of the fish which you have caught. And Simon Peter went up and drew the net to the land full of great fish, 150, 153 fish. And for all there were so many, yet not the net broke. The first, first sign and the last sign, well, all the signs, but we won't have time to go into all of them, but the first one and the last one, both of those signs were uh, against the laws of nature. You don't put, fill water up in jugs and then it turn into some of the finest, some of the most premium, some of the greatest wine. I mean, that, the, the, the guy there at the wedding, he even commented about how wonderful that wine was. That, that defied the laws of nature. You just don't do that. Well, th these nets did not break, yet was not the net broken. With that many fish, the net probably should have just, just tore and ripped, and there should have been fish scattered all over the bank as they were bringing it up to him. I think that's the reason why he said, bring it up here. Not that he needed any more fish, but he just wanted to show them that I can supply all of your need, including that net not breaking. You trust me. You believe in me. Your faith and confidence be in me. You, you don't have to worry about the typical laws of nature being in effect. But yet the net did not break. And Jesus said unto them, Oh, what an invitation! What an invitation! Come and dine. Come and dine. 
And none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord. And Jesus then comes and he takes bread and he gives them and fish likewise. Supplying their every need. And this is now the third time that Jesus showed himself to his disciples. After that, he was risen from the dead. After he was risen from the dead, he showed himself. This was the third time that he had showed himself to be real to the disciples. And each one of those times, there are significant events that transpired, again, showing that he's exactly who he says that he is. Showing himself to be Almighty God. Folks, by faith, I believe that. As a matter of fact, look, here's what I want. I want to be in this group, not in the group that Thomas was in, right? Look, look at, go back over to John chapter 20. Verse 25, John, Thomas says, Hey, except I see his hands in print of his nails and put my finger into the print of his nails and thrust my hand into his side, I'm not going to believe. Uh, look at verse 29. And Jesus said unto him, Thomas, because you have seen me and you've believed, and blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. Which group do you want to be in? I want to be in the last one. I want to be in that group that says, Lord, you have nothing to prove to me. I believe. Help my, and my prayer sometimes, folks, is, Lord, I believe. Now help my unbelief. You ever prayed something like that? You ever had, had those doubts, those times in your life? Lord, I believe. Help now my unbelief. I want to be in that last group. And I hope you do too. God has proven himself faithful to me over and over and over again. And there's not a person in this room that knows the Lord Jesus they could say, no, well, God's never shown himself faithful to me. I guarantee you, each and every one of us have experienced the faithfulness and the care and the provision of our loving Heavenly Father. What a testimony that is. Verse 15, here we go. This is the part we talked about last week, and I think this is so interesting. So when they had dined... And they were just sort of kicked back. They were just, I mean, can you imagine eating with the Lord Jesus and around the campfire and, and it, it just how marvelous this must have been. And when they had dined, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, do you love me more than these? Now, that's an interesting question because Back over in Matthew 26. Look at Matthew 26. What is going on here? I, I think the Lord is, is reminding Peter of something. And keep this in mind. Peter is the one that God is going to give the keys of the kingdom. He is the one that's going to have the keys to the kingdom. And what do you do with the keys? You unlock something. 
It is Peter that's going to stand and be the spokesman on the day of Pentecost, and he's going to use the, he is going to use his keys to open up that offer to the nation of Israel to believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah in order that the times of refreshing, the millennial kingdom can come from the presence of the Lord. But back over in Matthew 26, let's start with verse 30. Because all this plays into what, what's going on here in John 21. Matthew 26, verse 30. When they had sung a hymn, they went out unto the Mount of Olives, and then said Jesus unto them, All you shall be offended because of me this night. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. Now, that's, that's important as to what Christ is about to say to Peter. And after I'm risen again, I will go before you into Galilee. And Peter answered and said unto him, Though all men shall be offended because of thee, yet will I never be offended. And the Lord says, Before the cock crows, you will have denied me three times. Before morning comes, Peter, you will have denied me three times. And remember, Christ had said, Whosoever denies me before men, I will deny before my Father. That's serious. That's why it's so important that the angel told Mary to go tell his disciples and Peter to come. Go tell him what's going on. Again, showing God's love and his forgiveness. And, and so here, I think the Lord is reminding Peter about that episode because it, all, if, it, Peter's saying, if all of these people, they deny you, I'm not going to deny you. And the Lord says, uh, do you, do you love me more than these? Why, I'm never going to forsake thee. All these others might forsake thee. All these other people might deny you. I never will. And the Lord's saying, Peter, do you love me more than these? And the Lord uses the word agape, which is a strong word for love. The Lord uses, do you have... Agape is a kind of love that God has for us. Agape is the kind of love that you, the, the object that's love is loved only because it needs to be loved so desperately. That's a godly love. Agape is loving that individual because, not because they're lovely, not because they deserve it, but because they need it. And the Lord says, Peter, do you love me? With a godly type love. And what does Peter say? Lord, I like you. I have, I have strong emotional feelings. I, I like you. And the Lord says, feed my lambs. Or in other words, really, the word feed there means provide pasture for my lambs. Remember what was Christ talking about back over in Matthew 26? how the sheep were going to be scattered, how the shepherds weren't going to be doing their work. He's calling Peter to action. He's, he's reminding Peter about that discussion back over in Matthew 26. Find my lamb's pasture. 
This is what he's telling Peter here. Verse 16. And he said unto him again the second time, Simon, son of Jonas, do you agape thou me? And he said unto him, Yea, Lord, you know that I phileo. You know that I like you. And he said unto him, Shepherd my sheep. The word feed there is not the same as the other word. One is provide pasture. The other here is shepherd my sheep. Shepherd my sheep. You know why that's important? Well, I mean, because the Lord said it. That's reason, that's reason enough to be important right there, right? But the bells and the whistles and the lights and all the scriptural knowledge should have gone off in their head and he, he should have said, Ezekiel 34, Jeremiah 23, because that's exactly what's going on there. Look at Jeremiah 23. See, folks, the Word of God, it is just so glorious. It is just so wonderful in truth that here is this gentle shepherd, the one who loves us, the one who is Peter denied, yet he's showing his goodness and his kindness but Jeremiah 23 talks about the spiritual leaders of Israel not doing their jobs. Woe be unto the pastors or the shepherds that destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, says the Lord. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God of Israel against the pastors that feed my people. You have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not visited them. Behold, I will visit upon you the evil of your doings, saith the Lord. I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all countries where I have driven them and bring them again to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and increase. And I will set up shepherds. Peter, shepherd my sheep. I will set up shepherds over them which shall feed them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, neither shall they be lacking, saith the Lord. Look at Ezekiel 34, real quick. Ezekiel 34. Again, Ezekiel 34 is talking about all the, the fake shepherds and the false shepherds and those that are not leading Israel in the path that God would have them go. Verse 11 but thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I, even I, will search my sheep and seek them out. Verse 12 says, They are scattered, but I will seek them out. All these promises that God is making to Israel. Verse 15, I will feed my flock. I will cause them to lie down, saith the Lord God. Verse 22, Therefore will I save my flock, and they shall no more be a prey, and I will judge between cattle and cattle. And I will set up one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them. Even my servant David, he shall feed them, and he shall be their shepherd. I think the Lord Jesus is reminding Peter of those promises and God's plan and the fulfillment of God's plan. It's happening here. Shepherd my sheep, Peter. Verse 17, and he says unto him the third time, Simon, Son of Jonas, do you like me? The Lord changed the word. 
from agapo, or from agape, to the word that Peter kept using. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? Peter, do you like me? And Peter was grieved. Now, the word grieved there doesn't mean agitated. What, what does it mean? Why, how come he keeps asking me this question? I think Peter got the message. I think it was like a battering ram. Boom. And Peter was grieved because he said unto him the third time, Lovest thou me? And he said unto him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love thee. And Jesus saith unto him, Provide pasture for my sheep. Goes back to what he said before. You care for them. You have an important role. You have a ministry. I'm counting on you, Peter. You are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my ecclesia, my called out ones. And the gates of hell are not going to prevail against his called out ones. It's what this was, this was all about. And then he goes on to tell him about how he was going to die. And he tells John, uh, Peter asked him, well, what about John? The Lord tells Peter what manner of death he's going to, going to have, describes his, his death to him. And, and I'd, I would be concentrating on that. I would be thinking, you know what, that sort of sounds like a crucifixion to me too. Bummer. But instead of that, he just turns around and he says, well, what about this one? What about John? What's going to happen to him? And the Lord basically says, that's none of your concern. That's none of your concern. Peter, you need to focus on my plans and my purpose for your life and not be worried about plans and purpose for these others. And at the end, he just tells them all basically to tarry until I come. Now, folks, real quick, before the offer of the kingdom to Israel could take place, before the promise of God the Father to the nation of Israel, and we could go back through the Old Testament and we could talk about all those promises and those plans for Israel. We could talk about all those before that kingdom could be literally offered to the nation of Israel to repent of their sin. Certain things had to take place. There had to be the crucifixion. There had to be the resurrection. Well, the crucifixion, uh, what was that? A, uh, what was the Passover a type of? The crucifixion. And did the crucifixion, did it fulfill that type? Let me give you a hint. Yeah, it did. What about the resurrection? Was there another feast day that that, that fell under? Yeah. First fruits. Before 
before the kingdom could be offered, there had to be three feast days fulfilled. The Passover, Feast of first fruits and Unleavened Bread, they were all part together. And then, 50 days later, there was another feast day. And the purpose of that feast day was just to count out 50 days after the, the, other, the last feast. 50 days later, you have another feast. You have another reason to celebrate. What does the word Pentecost mean? Fifty. Fifty. That was the whole purpose. God was saying, let me show you how in charge I am. Let me show you how great I am. Here are these feast days, and this is exactly what's going to happen, that on the 50th day, I am going to pour out my spirit when you all come together to observe this feast day that I've called you to observe for no other reason other than I'm going to show you my might, I'm going to show you my power, and there's something that's going to happen 50 days, and you're going to be blessed. That's exactly what was going on here. Look at Acts chapter 1. Verse 1. In the former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. See, the book of Acts kind of goes and fills in a few gaps, just like each one of the gospel accounts filled in some of the gaps of what took place during that 40 days. Remember, that's all 40 days when Christ was appearing, when he was presenting himself and he's manifesting himself, and he's on earth teaching them and opening their eyes so they understand all Scripture and preparing them for the, the tribulation that's about to come and all the stuff that's going to take place. All of that is, is, is lining up. They're about to witness Christ ascending into heaven. Ten days after that, guess what day it's going to be? Pentecost. Fifty days Pentecost. And that's when the promise of the Father is going to take place. Another indication that God says, I'm on my throne. I am blessing you. I am going to fulfill these promises to you, Israel. In a former treatise, you want to know who the author of Acts is. It's Luke, because you go back to Luke, and his first verse there, he's writing to, to Theophilus. Verse 2, until the day in which he was taken up, after that he, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen. To whom he also showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs. They couldn't get it wrong. It couldn't be denied. People saw him. And being seen of them 40 days and speaking of things pertaining to the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. In Luke, it's called the kingdom of God. In Matthew, it's called the kingdom of heaven of the things that God had promised the nation of Israel, the blessings that were to come upon earth when the Messiah is ruling and reigning. He's, he's speaking of all those things because remember, the church, the body of Christ, is still what? A mystery. It's still hidden in God. This time that we're in right now, this dispensation of the grace of God, there, there was not a peep. Nothing was going on this point concerning the church, the body of Christ. This is all about the offer to Israel in order that the times of refreshing might come from the presence of the Lord. 
And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father. And we uh, look at Acts 2 real quick. You want to know what that promise was? Promise, look at Acts 2, 33. Verse 33, therefore being by the right hand of God highly exalted and having received of the promise of the Father of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this which you now see and hear. So, and there, there are so many other scriptures. I, I could take you to Isaiah 44, 3, Ezekiel 36, 26. We're running out of time. All those scriptures talk about the promise of the Father. It's the empowering from on high, the Holy Spirit coming. Folks, this is not the beginning of the church, the body of Christ. It is still a mystery. It's still hid in God. This has to do with Old Testament fulfillment of Scripture. That's why it's so important for people to understand this. The day of Pentecost was not the beginning of the church. It was the offer that God had made to Israel for them to believe. Look at verse 6. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, will thou now at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? That's what they were looking for. That's what they were looking forward to. He, tell, he tells them, it's not for you to know the times or the season. He couldn't say yes, because there was something hid in God. That's this present dispensation. He couldn't say no, because it was hidden in God. So he basically said, it's not for you to know the times of the season. You just do what you're called to do. And you know what they did? They did what they were called to do. On the day of Pentecost, they, Peter stood and he told them there exactly what was going on. This is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel, an Old Testament prophet that talked about exactly what was going on in the beginning of the tribulation period and all that they needed to prepare for. That's what was going on. And then as we read through the rest of it, we, we realize that Christ came into his own and his own received him not. Christ came and he, all the promises that God had made to Israel, he said, here they are. Here's the opportunity. Believe. Trust. And he said, we will not have this man to reign over us. Matter of fact, look at Acts 7 real quick and then we'll be done. Either that or just getting started. I'm not sure which. But Acts chapter 7, what did they do? Look at verse 55. Stephen had just, just lambasted the religious leaders of Israel for their unfaithfulness, for their sin, for their hard-heartedness. Verse 51, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised and hard in ears, do you always resist the Holy Ghost? As your fathers did, so do you. What an indictment against them. He calls them in verse 52, you're, you're betrayers and murderers. Can't believe they didn't like that. Who hath received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it. And when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed on him with their teeth. They growled at him. Oh, this was Stephen. This is not the Lord. This is Stephen, a man full of the Holy Spirit. God's Word tells us to look at him was like to look at the face of an angel. Indicating that he was full of the Holy Spirit. See, I believe that Israel 
they rejected God the Father when they allowed the beheading of John the Baptist. I believe that they uh, murdered the Son of God when they crucified Christ. And they're denying the Holy Spirit here when a Stephen, a man full of the Holy Spirit, they, they looked at him. They could tell. But it made no difference. And they ran upon him. They were so mad. And he, he tells them, he says, I see the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. And when he said that, boy, they came after him with all sorts of anger and malice. And they cried out, they stopped their ears, and they ran upon him with one accord. And they stoned him. And as we read this, we understand their vitriol, their hatred for the truth of God's word. But God's word, this was going to happen. Israel, this, there was going to be this rejection. But through it all, God loves, God calls his own and we see from the scripture and what's significant is that when Christ ascended, he ascended to the right hand of the Father. And what did he do? He sat down. The resurrection, when it, uh, uh, the, the resurrection happened and then the ascension, and that's what's important. The ascension took place. The, the Lord ascended into heaven and he sat down at the right hand of the Father. That's significant. What does what a sitting represent? Rest, comfort, job well done, a job finished. But then when Stephen sees him, he looks up in heaven and he sees the Son of Man, he sees the Lord Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. In the Scripture, every time the Lord is standing, it is in judgment. Israel is being judged. The tribulation should have started. The wrath of God should have been poured out. But you know what was poured out instead? God's amazing grace. That He looked beyond our faults and our propensity to always reject His love and His mercy. And He said, I'm going to save Jews and Gentiles. By my grace. Hallelujah. It's not based on anything, any covenant relationship with Abraham or Moses or Isaac or Jacob. It's not going to be based on any covenant promise. It's all based on my grace. It's not by any works. It's not based on any, anything that they could ever hope to accomplish. You can have eternal life by believing. Well, that's just too simple. Yeah, it is. But the work was accomplished by Christ on Calvary's cross. Oh, what a gentle shepherd he is. And I'm telling you, folks, it is because of who we worship and serve. It's because as I study these truths, they just become so apparent that I realize what a great God we serve. And regardless of what happens, regardless how difficult life becomes, we serve this gentle shepherd who loves us. Tim, did you get that? I want you to listen to this song. 